From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, an update on everything going on with Huawei, which has become this symbol of so many things, really. The trade wars between the U.S. and China, the divided and monopolistic future of tech, and so many other things. There's a lot to process there. Later on, I'll talk with Ian Morris, the CEO of a Bill Gates-backed startup called Likewise, which thinks it can make reviews and recommendations actually useful on the internet. I am skeptical about that. One note about this week's episode, thanks to some delightfully fun scheduling and tech issues, you're going to hear a lot of different people kind of floating in and out of the episode. We're working on all of this, I promise. The key is just don't think too much about it. We'll get better. Anyway, let's get to it. So we talk a lot about Amazon versus Google and Alexa versus Assistant and the battle for smart home and virtual assistant domination. But Amazon's actually trying to make inroads into your home in a slightly different and bigger and maybe even more impactful way than just selling you new gadgets. Christopher Mims has been checking in on what a truly Amazonified home looks like and what it gets Amazon and you. So Christopher's here with me now. So just start at the beginning here because I feel like you've you've wound up down this sort of odd smart home construction path and I'm not quite sure how you got there. So take us through kind of what you've been looking into the last couple of weeks. So I've been looking at... Um what just tingled my spidey sense because it felt like, oh, this is this backdoor way that Amazon is going to get its smart speakers into literally millions of homes and all at once, well, not all at once, but over a short period of time and without any consumer having to lift a finger, which as we all know is the real challenge of smart home adoption. You have to buy the hub, you have to decide what ecosystem you want to be in first. And you got to buy all the things that fit with it, whether it's Google or Apple or um, Amazon or something fancy. Uh, And then you've got to install it all. And it's just on and on and on and on. Like, who wants to do all that? It's a major barrier to adoption. So I'm actually curious about that. Have you done much of this? Because I'm I'm looking around my apartment now and I have done like a, a third of the work to install things so many different times because I'm I'm renting and I don't want to open the walls and even like installing a, a smart light switch, which I tried to do a while ago, became this giant mess of a thing that would have probably, you know, screwed up my security deposit. And I wanted to put in a thermostat, but then I had to deal with my landlord and it just became this whole stupid thing. But you're a person who owns a house. Have you gone and like retrofitted the whole thing? No. And and you would think that I would, right? Because I I am a first time home buyer and I'm interested in energy efficiency and I'm a tech columnist. But honestly, what that all taught me was that this stuff is to be avoided, frankly. <laughs> I hate to say it. Um, but it's just it's all um if you're if you're DIYing it, and even if you're not, it's kind of half baked. Um but what Amazon is doing now that's very clever is uh they're just saying like, well, let's kind of uh, you know, that market is, is going to do whatever it's going to do. We are going to go after uh, the folks who uh, own and manage so-called multifamily units, a.k.a. apartment buildings, because if there is a sort of all-in-one solution that works for them that can help save them money or give them more control over their units or whatever, then they will adopt it en masse, and that means moving tens of thousands and eventually millions of units. So the way that they're doing that is they have partners. One of their partners is this company called Zigo, which came up with this clever hub 
that requires putting zero wires on the wall because it is a Z-Wave hub for those of you who are um, Internet of Things and smart home nerds. Uh, That's one of the like 50,000 smart home standards that exist right now. Wireless standards. Yeah, there's like Z-Wave, Zigbee. You can do it through Bluetooth, Wi-Fi. Um, None of that matters because it just connects to a cellular network wirelessly and then it can control in the basic package a smart thermostat, which are uh, actually really cheap now and just everywhere. Like you just look on Home Depot, there's 500 of them. And uh, smart locks, there's a million of those. And the reason that apartments want to install this is it lets them, you know, an apartment turns over, you don't have to rekey the lock anymore because it's a smart lock, you just change the code. You need to let in a plumber for one day only, give them a temporary code. You don't want the AC to be running in an empty apartment while it's unoccupied, switch it off remotely. So that's the value proposition for them. And what they've cleverly built in is this Alexa compatibility. And this is how they get tenants to buy into it. Because in a lot of these apartments they are like, Hey, it comes with a free smart speaker. Isn't that cool? Oh, (laughs) and there's a shop on our app that connects directly to Amazon and you can buy your smart lights, which we know are compatible with this apartment setup and your device you know, directly through the app on Amazon. And they say they don't even take a cut. There's no affiliate link. It is solely to just increase stickiness with these apartments, make people more likely to, you know, renew their lease or rent the apartment in the first place. And this company called Paylease just bought Zego. And they told me that they are going to roll this out in 6 million apartments Whoa. in the next five years. And that's just one company. They're already in 50,000 other ones. And this, it turns out, is actually just a smaller part of Amazon's much larger strategy, which involves, you know, giant uh, hotel companies like Marriott that are going to roll out uh, Alexa devices in a bunch of their hotel rooms. It also involves home builders. So they made a deal with the largest home builder in America, which is making 100% of its homes since the beginning of 2018 either like it comes with an Alexa or it's Alexa ready and they put in all this smart home goo guys and it gets controlled from an Alexa device. So that's 34,000 homes. Are Google and Apple and, you know, Samsung and Microsoft and everybody else working on these assistants, is, are they going to start doing this too? Or is Amazon just going to eat this market before anybody else even notices? I mean, they all, right, anytime any of them hits on something that's workable, the rest of them uh, follow suit immediately. I, I, I am, I, I honestly, this is, this is just like how egotistical I am. I honestly think that the day that this article comes out, which will be after this podcast goes live now that executives at Google are going to be passing around and being like, whoops. And then they will go and start cutting more of these deals. And then the next building in Oklahoma city will be Google, uh, certified instead of Amazon certified. Is this the future? Like, am I going to have to decide the next time I move, whether I want, you know, unit 150, which is an Amazon apartment or 151, which is a Google one or 152, which is an Apple one. Like, is that, is that going to be part of my home buying process from now on? I mean, I insane. Yeah. I think, I think that they are even Zigo, which, which does have a, a, a partnership, which they declined to give me the details of with Amazon their stuff is compatible with Google as well. So for people who have a strong preference, you know, they're going to be able to go with one or the other. 
but again, I think that it's going to be this um, like VHS versus Betamax thing where people, most people are going to be like, I don't care because this is newish to me and I'm not super attached or loyal yet. And so they're just trying to get them early, you know? Yeah, that's true. Before you have any attachment to any of those, you just walk in and they say, oh, you just turn on the lights by telling Alexa and then it's done. You've you've converted forever. Exactly. And given that this is a voice interface, hopefully if they're all doing their job, you shouldn't have to care anyway. I mean, you could true. call it any name you want. Eventually you can't now, as you know, but it, it should just be like computer do this thing. And that's it. That's the whole interface. Yeah, I, I have changed my Alexa to computer, speaking of which, and it is wonderful. It's one of the things you can change the name to, and I really quite like it. Uh, and it turns out computer is not a word I say all that often in life, so it, it has worked extremely well for me. Huawei's been in the news a lot recently, but not for new products or crazy new tech it's working on. It's because Google recently banned the company from using some of its Android services, and some carriers and partners are no longer working with Huawei, and even some suppliers and manufacturers won't give their stuff to Huawei. This all comes after more than a year of security experts warning that Huawei might be in league with the Chinese government, collecting and sharing data on customers all over the world. And it's not just phones and laptops either. Huawei's a big player in the new 5G infrastructure and cell towers, and it even owns some of the cables running on the ocean floor, bringing the internet all over the world. So what's going on here? Is Huawei an actual threat? And what changed in the last couple of months? Back in January, we had Stu Wu, a journal reporter, come on and tell us what was going on with Huawei. And I think it's time for an update. Stu lives in Beijing now, and it's very late there, but let's see if we can get Stu on the phone. All right, Stu, let's start here. So you were on here, uh, I think, what, four months ago, and we were kind Mm -hmm. of in this position of things were happening with the U.S. and Huawei, and there were there were political issues, and there were trade issues, and there was accusations that were not really founded. Uh, and then things seemed to bubble for a long time, and then in the last two weeks or so, have really sort of exploded. Is that a fair timeline? Like, we're we're is this is right now the moment where everything is kind of coming to fruition? Yeah, I would say this is like the second nuclear bomb for Huawei. The, the first one was in December when the U.S. arrested the. Uh, Huawei's CFO and the founders, who's also the founder's daughter in Canada, that was in December. Now is the really big thing where the U.S. says U.S. companies can't sell components to Huawei. So that includes the chips it needs for its smartphones and its telecom equipment. Bigger thing might be uh, Google can't sell uh, Android or some certain Android apps like Gmail or Google Maps to Huawei anymore. So, and this all came and, out of, this is an, an executive order, right? I just want to like sort of make sure I have the, the basic points of this right. And it was basically the, the Trump administration said specifically about Huawei, right? That it is it is some sort of threat and has to be no, no longer worked with. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, well, let's, let's, I guess let's step back a, a second. Uh, so it's a reminder of who Huawei is. Huawei is one of China's biggest companies. It's the world's uh, number two maker of smartphones uh, behind Samsung out of Apple. Uh, it's the number one maker of telecom equipment. So that's like uh, a cellular antenna that AT&T or Verizon would buy. And I say would buy because uh, they're banned in America. They've been, they've been basically banned in America since 2012 for these national security issues. The White House, the White House, the White House says the Chinese government could force Huawei to either use its equipment to spy or to or shut down communications. Um, and that's a big deal with 5G coming up. 5G is supposed to be much faster than today's networks, wireless networks. 
going to enable not only like things like driverless cars or an automated factory, but we're talking like military technologies. Like uh, imagine a swarm of battlefield drones. So that's why the White House, the Pentagon, a lot of people in Washington are really worried. Um, so what you were talking about is that uh, the executive order officially banned Huawei. Uh, that's one thing. And that doesn't really do much because they've already been basically banned for seven years. The other thing, uh, parallel thing that happened uh, on the exact same day is that the Commerce Department did this, did this ban on American components uh, to Huawei. And what kind of, what are, like, what are some of the biggest components that Huawei gets from the U.S.? The two best examples are um, chips. They need chips to make their smartphones and their equipment. Uh, the biggest, biggest example are, are, is um, Google's Android operating system. Um, Huawei's like the number one phone in a bunch of European countries. And I don't know if, 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 if I'm in Europe and uh, I, I buy a Huawei phone and I can't use Google, uh, Gmail or Google Maps, I don't know if I'm going to want to buy that. Hmm. And has Huawei said what they're doing to get around this yet? Uh, they say they, they hope to uh, resolve this issue. They're still walk, uh, talking to Washington. Washington has this 90-day exemption period where they're going to review uh, you know, what they're actually going to do with Huawei. But Huawei uh, is also working on its own operating system. Um, and uh, who knows whether that'll work. You might remember in the past that Microsoft made one for the Windows Phone. Nokia made one. Samsung has its own, actually. Uh, but it's really hard to make an operating system that, that works well and that has a lot of apps that people want to use. What are they going to call it? Have they said what they're going to call that? <laughs> you know, uh, our wow, uh, colleagues... Yes. Wow. Wow, yes. <laughs> my, my, my colleagues uh, here in Beijing and Hong Kong wrote a story. I think the, the working name is, uh, is Hong Men, and uh, I don't know Mandarin well enough yet to know what that means. But that's just a working name. Who knows what the final name will be? Yeah, that was, to me, one of the things that was the most striking about all of this, was it, it really makes clear how important Android is to the world in a way that I think... I had not even totally reckoned with that. Like, there are really only two operating systems that matter. There's Android and there's iOS, and Apple doesn't give iOS to anybody else. So there's essentially just Android. And so, I mean, to your point, like we've Huawei has been going through this stuff for for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, Google can show up and say, "Well, you can't use our stuff anymore," and it feels like a whole new level of catastrophe. And it was like that one plus ARM, which licenses all the chip designs to everybody. That felt like, oh, these these are actually a small number of companies that have this kind of power and can be pushed to use it to, I think, much bigger effect than I even realized. Because I think you're right. Like Huawei can, anybody can build software, but many have tried to unseat Android and uh, nobody has done it, which is why, which is kind of why we're here. I think if any country can um, create its own parallel, you know, operating system or something like that, it might be China. They, you know, Facebook and Google aren't allowed to be here. So they have Baidu and, and WeChat here. Um, but the question is, uh, Huawei is really big outside China too. And will people want their products if they can't use, you know, the apps that we all, all love? Yeah. I mean, it does seem like in China, any phone that runs WeChat might have a chance, right? That that's, it's a pretty easy shortcut. You just build a WeChat phone and call it a day. It it could be. I mean, and and the government can definitely incentivize that. I know a lot of Chinese people here love Huawei and, and, you know, we have the pride, um, but a lot of uh, Huawei sales come from outside China. So we might be uh, now headed towards this world where there really are only two kinds of, uh, you know, Internet uh, systems and uh, hardware. There's going to be a Chinese Internet and Chinese hardware and a non-Chinese Internet and non-Chinese hardware. So one of the questions I've had is that, so you mentioned before the the ban on, on Huawei 
selling here, and that's been or selling telecom equipment to the U.S. for a number of years. But what are the other who are or who are the other leading companies that make the five G equipment that we need to build the five G infrastructure in the U.S. Mm-hmm. In the world, Huawei is the number one maker of this equipment. Um, they're about as big as the next two combined, and that's Nokia and Ericsson, which are both European, and then Cisco is in there as well. Um, I talked to European wireless carriers. They buy from all those Western companies as well as Huawei, and they say that Huawei is generally uh, cheaper and a little bit more technically advanced. Um, so um, uh, Americans pay more for cell service than um, basically anybody else in the world, and part of that's because they have to pay more, more for their equipment. Uh, the Western equipment's more expensive, and they don't have Huawei there to pressure those Western companies to lower their prices. Oh, interesting. So, And, and there's also been a lot of talk Americans. about the the sort of ramifications about this for the broader tech world, where whether it's components are going to get more expensive or some companies are going to go out of business because they can't sell to Huawei anymore. And like, what is your sense, especially for people here in the States where they're not buying Huawei phones, they're not likely not buying Huawei laptops? Like, how does this how does this sort of ramificate out and, and affect people here who maybe don't care about Huawei products? Yeah, I think I was trying to think of an analogy today. So let's imagine you have a, have a you have a town with four lemonade stands, but they all buy their lemons from this one orchard. And suddenly the government says, hey, hey, orchard, you can't sell lemons to the biggest stand anymore. Well, maybe now the orchard has to lay off staff and they can't, you know, sell uh, other lemons, sell as many lemons to the other, you know, remaining stand. So that's what's happening right now. If the U.S. government says uh, U.S. companies can't sell to Huawei, well, these component makers uh, suddenly are losing a huge source of revenue, and they may, may not be able to sell components as many components to these Western companies, too. Um, so it, I, I didn't realize how interconnected the supply, the supply chain was, and it really runs through the U.S. and China. So you can uh, try to harm one company, but it might have some collateral damage back at home. Okay. Before you go, Stu, there's, there's one thing I, I want to make sure that, that we understand, which is... Uh, you keep using words like Beijing could spy or Huawei can send data back. Like this is the big worry. But is there? Do we still have any evidence yeah. that Huawei is actually doing with the Chinese government what the U.S. government says it might be doing with the Chinese government? Definitely has a track record of uh, stealing, um, of, of allegedly stealing trade secrets from other companies. I think. The, the funny, well, there's a lot of actually kind of funny examples, but they copied, uh, they allegedly copied Cisco code in 2003 down to the bugs. You know, it's like when you're uh, trying to copy someone's answer on the test and you copy the exact same wrong answer. <laughs> um, and uh, and then they're also uh, maybe more seriously, they've uh, allegedly uh, misled banks into uh, evading uh, sanctions on Iran. So they have a long uh, history of being accused of, of bad things. The spying thing, there is no right. smoking gun, no. So that, that, that's a difference. Yes, Huawei has a track record of being a bad actor. No, there's no publicly available evidence that they've ever spied on, on anybody. Yeah. And then is obviously also our reporting has talked a lot about this, but the, the connections between the top brass at Huawei and, and the Chinese government. Exactly. Uh, the founder was a, a former engineer uh, for the People's Liberation Army. So... Um, and, and like every Chinese company, they have a Chinese Communist Party committee there. So there's definitely some links to uh, the Chinese government, uh, how strong they are. Uh, we, we don't really know. 
Yeah, and not to talk about anyone else other than the journals reporting, but I actually watched this video from Vice where um, one of their reporters mm-hmm. went to the Huawei campus. Did you watch that? I did not. I, I read about that. Though. And like he, one of the reporter, I don't know his name, he asks flat out in the interview, you know, is any any of your executives have connections to the communist party, to the, the Chinese government or to the communist party? And she says no. And then like he gets a text message a little bit later saying actually that wasn't true. And the PR like clarifies a couple of things. Yeah, I, I, but it's, 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 it's normal for uh, any Chinese company to have connections to the Chinese government. Uh, they have to. Um, the, the big thing that the U.S. and U.K. government like to point to is also this uh, cybersecurity law. I think it's from 2017 that says that uh, any Chinese company or system has to assist the Chinese government in uh, an intelligence uh, collection effort. So they, they point to that specifically as to why they, they don't want Huawei in, in their country. Fair enough. We, we have kept you up long enough. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Thank you for all this. And I think we, we're going to have to do this again in, in 90 days and see how it's all shaking out. Right? <laughs> Okay, moving on. Coming up in just a second, my interview with Likewise CEO Ian Morris on whether it's even possible to make recommendations and reviews actually work on the internet. Before we get to that, though, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings something weird or cool we learned this week that may or may not actually matter to any of our stories. Uh, Joanna, you have one this week, right? I do. This week I learned that the iPod Touch still exists. (laughs) Yeah, so Apple updated the iPod Touch on Tuesday, right after the holiday weekend. Big holiday for all of us. We got a new iPod Touch, which the only thing that's been updated is the processor, it seems. It's still, or did it always start at $200, $199? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the picture of the new iPod Touch now, and the bezel on this thing with it's the giant. home button and the huge, it's this, it looks very old now in but a way when that you the t- iPod but Touch But it's did not really before. thin. I mean, when you pick okay. it up in this, I, I've like, I look, I do remember that the iPod Touch is there because I always see it in the the Apple Store sometimes, and I'm like, oh yeah, that thing. Um, <laughs> but the craziest thing I learned is that it still has a headphone jack. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if we're letting Apple know right now that they had a headphone jack on this, and they're like, oh crap, we forgot to remove it. As much as like we make fun of the the iPod Touch, the iPod Touch is still a great device for kids especially because True. if you're a parent you don't want to pay for a cel- cellular bill you ipod ipads are a thing obviously and ipads are huge with kids but this is like too big though too big too expensive and you've got control over this device with their with parental controls you've got a faster processor now and yeah i still think they sell a lot of these to parents and i think they also sell a lot of them like i see them as like point of sale, like if you have a like, I mean, maybe that's why they kept the headphone jack is because you can put the square reader in there. Oh, yeah. And it's a cheap iOS device. So basically, it's the cheapest iOS device that Apple sells. And I bet they still sell quite enough of these that they don't want to get rid of it. All of the things that I do on my iPhone, other than regular phone calls, which I could easily replace with WhatsApp or whatever else, like you could basically use an iPod Touch as a pretty functional iPhone. If Wi-Fi was ubiquitous enough, you can make your phone calls on the iPad. I just I'm so rarely away from Wi-Fi now. Maybe this is what I'll do. I'll just ditch my phone and get an iPod Touch and just let that be my only phone. And if you can't call me because I'm not at home, then so be it. You're already changing your phones all the time with your (laughs) SIM card problems and your Verizon problems. So like we can't call you already. 
Uh, Verizon I, finally fixed my problem. It was so exciting. I would I support this idea because then you'll be back to blue bubbling and I will feel better about our communications. Well, I do like that Apple is pitching AR as a thing that people are going to do on this device and I find that sort of adorably nonsensical. Uh, right, but that's The like, only thing anybody wants to do in AR is Pokemon Go, which you have to do out in the world where you don't have Wi-Fi. So this is not going to work for Apple, but you know, yeah. it's a nice idea. There's also this other subplot to this device, which is like Apple has just gone through this big series of updating spec updates to devices because guess what? You can say I've got there's a new blah, blah, blah. And people tell their friends or they they're, get the emails and they say, oh, I should get the new thing that Apple made. But it's really not that new. It just has a processor change or maybe another slight spec update and people buy it. So Apple has to sell here. There's a new processor update. What can you do with that processor? You can do AR. AR things. Yeah. Well, the good news is they haven't made one of these in, what, four years? Five years? I think yeah. it's four years. So the other ones uh, are really slow. <laughs> they're really... We should move on. We'll, we'll come back once once one of us has had a chance to actually mess around with uh, the iPod Touch. And, and I'm not we'll sure we will. Back. Okay. Coming up in just a second, my interview with Ian Morris, the CEO of Likewise, about how to make recommendations and reviews actually useful on the internet. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Over the years, everything on the internet seems to have become reviewable in some way. You can leave a star rating for any place you go or anything you watch or hear or read or eat. You can review your Lyft driver and your Airbnb and the toilet paper you bought on Amazon the other day. But as we've gotten all this data, it feels like it's becoming less and less meaningful. You you get a five-star rating, which means different things to different people and different things on different platforms. Reviews can be bought and paid for. They can be gamed or faked or scammed. It, it just doesn't it's not clear what to do with any of it. But the easiest solution is just, you know, ignore the reviews. But you can't. There's too much stuff and too many shows and too many places to go and things to do and ramen to eat. We need a way to sort through all the stuff out there to find the best of it all. We just need a way that works for a change. That's what Ian Morris, the CEO of a startup called Likewise, thinks he's actually starting to make. Likewise is backed and funded by Bill Gates, and its idea is to help people find a way to get recommendations that's actually useful and meaningful. And, spoiler alert, it definitely does not involve star ratings. Likewise starts with one key question. Who gives a crap what a bunch of strangers think? We, we just don't believe that crowdsourcing is the future of recommendations. Um, it made a ton of sense originally, the early days of the internet, you know, you didn't really have anything. So along come these crowdsourcing companies, it's a heck of a lot more interesting than a directory to actually hear what people think. But we all know what's happened. They're loaded, loaded with fake reviews and consumers have caught on. They're skeptical, they're right to be skeptical. There's been scandal after scandal, companies like TripAdvisor, Yelp, Amazon have all struggled with the fact that, you know, people are gaming the system as always happens. And so we believe a few things. We believe that, um, you know, authenticity is going to really displace anonymity as a way people get recommendations. 
personal recommendations are going to surpass ratings and make it much easier for people to make decisions. And then this combination of kind of, you know, computing everywhere with this, you know, intelligent agents and AI and so on will make it really easy to get highly personalized recommendations for anything from anywhere. And, and we're trying to be at the forefront of, of those shifts. And that's where likewise is going. The idea of, yes, we'll provide you with some personalized recommendations and you can help make those recommendations better by, you know, telling us things you like and don't like. But it really gets interesting when you bring your friends and uh, into it. You can follow your friends' picks. You can follow other people who you may respect who have their recommendations online and so on. I guess you're sort of describing like the what Yelp has always tried to do, which is tell you the five best restaurants that you'll like. But what do you need in order to be able to tell me what movies I'm going to like even after I've sold you what movies I already like? Does that make sense? What? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got this world of these noisy crowdsourced apps where unfortunately the noise outweighs the signal many fold. And then you have what happens in real life. We're trying to replicate the dinner conversation that you have with friends. Um, one of the things that is so compelling when we think about and the reason we've started off as, as being in multiple categories, not just one, is you go out to dinner with some friends um, and what naturally starts to happen within minutes is you've got your you're talking about the food at this place and how you've wanted to try it and then somebody says hey you know what else is great have you guys tried xyz restaurant and so on and, and the conversation goes in that direction and then all of a sudden someone mentions a show um that's on netflix and oh my god you haven't binged this i'm so jealous i wish i could start again and and watch this and you know books you've read podcasts you've listened to and so that's the real life conversation that is it's really the way people get recommendations when they're not forced to that last resort of crowdsourcing i feel like i have seen apps and services that that try to do this same thing sort of like tell people what you like so that they can see it too but it just seems like that that's a really hard behavior to convince people to do i agree it's it is a challenge for um any company getting started, particularly if you have a social component to really, you know, get that cold start and get people going. And and I guess part of the promise would be that kind of the more you put into it, the more you get out of it, that not only are people going to follow you and you'll get to feel like a tastemaker, but the more you tell the app what you like, the better it will get at telling you other things that you might like, right? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, we want we want it to be smart and work well for you as you, you want to be able to discover great things just for yourself, but it gets a lot more interesting. If people you look to for book recommendations, you want to get them sharing on likewise as well. Now, one thing I would call out is we don't see this as a mass social platform. In other words, we're not trying to convince people that they should try to get 2000 followers because this is a trust network. I have no idea what a four star lasagna tastes like, but I know I have a couple of friends who have very similar tastes to me. And if they tell me that there's this great new Italian place and I'm going to love it, it's a really high chance that if I go there, I'm going to love it. And then I'm going to recommend it. And hopefully there's people who I'm connected with who will be interested in that as well. I wonder, though, as you get bigger, is it possible to build a system like that that works at scale? I mean, I think about 
you know, Yelp got big enough and eventually most of the reviews became nonsense. Uber has one belief about what five stars means and, you know, Yelp has another and Google has another and there's no agreement on like how <laughs> these things are supposed to work uh, and sort of what what a thumbs up means means something different in a bunch of places and every system gets gamed, Rotten Tomatoes gets gamed and it's like, can you get big without people being able to game your system? Like, how do you avoid that? Yeah, I, I really believe we can. And I actually think there will be tremendous benefits from scale in our case. And for a couple of reasons, one, you know, because it's a trust network and you're going to choose to follow the people you want to follow, um, people could go in there and create all kinds of fake reviews if they want, but it's not going to affect what I choose to watch next because that is going to be driven by, you know, the network of people they trust. I think that's one important benefit. Another thing you mentioned that I'm, I'm passionate about is it's recommendations, not ratings. And I think there's a place for ratings in certain areas, but I, I can hear from the way you asked the question, we probably share a common belief around how overused they are. I don't know what triggers someone to give an Uber driver three stars. I have no idea what a three-star um, Uber ride is, right? Um, and so it really has gotten out of hand um, with these ratings. And for us, this is about creating a platform where you want to share something you're passionate about because you want other people to benefit from it. And I think most people take pride in that. It's an it's not only unselfish, but it feels good to let people know something you're passionate about. And I don't know about you. I, I've never once in my life called or emailed or texted a friend and says, hey, I'm going to be in Boston, you know, in three weeks. Can you recommend four or five things I should avoid? Like, it, it's just not a real, um, it's just not a real part of life. You want to know a few things that you should absolutely do or watch or read and so on. It does seem like one of those things where, uh, you know, so you, you, you get Instagram big and you get to a billion users and suddenly you're going to have people on the platform who have lots of followers and lots of influence. Uh, and that, as we've seen on every other platform, becomes a very lucrative place to be. And uh, I feel like your, your platform in particular, you're going to be only as good as the recommendations are legitimate so like do you have do you have a plan for how to sort of keep the nonsense and and paid for stuff out i mean i think i think our you know you make a very fair point but i think at least at today's stage we look at it and say by empowering the user to follow who they want to follow i mean hopefully that really solves it as well as technology can solve it because i i think you know, if people want to follow somebody who is giving recommendations and, and the recommendations are good for them, then great. They should continue following. And if they start to get very skeptical of, you know, those recommendations potentially being bought and paid for, well, then they just stop following that person. Okay. I mean, and I guess that the, that makes the case pretty strongly for the idea that it's going to be small groups of people who know each other. Uh, in which that's going to be less of an issue. Because I, I have to say, I don't buy the logic that it's super easy to just unfollow and not worry about it. Like, I think things get opaque and messy enough that it's not quite that straightforward. But it also sounds like you're imagining a, a user who's maybe not following celebrities the way they do on Instagram, but following people they know and have common interests with, which I guess has different incentives. 
Yeah, I think it starts with following people you know. What I've seen already on Likewise, and frankly, I see it on Instagram as well. People will follow some people they don't know, but they, you know, they connect with. They feel like there's a, you know, a, a common viewpoint with, and I, and I think you'll see that with some of these, you know, celebrities that will grow up on any social platform and will grow up on Likewise over time. But I think you know you're you're gonna you're gonna unfollow those people who because remember I mean we're not we're not about you know posting you know photos or you know political views or anything like that so you're really only looking to follow people whose recommendations you see valuable and when you go into likewise you can you see the recommendation and you see um, you know you see the faces and names of who is recommending them and so on so you can you can make those determinations you might be following somebody because they you love their movie picks but you know as far as books are concerned this is not this is not your thing and you may just ignore the fact that their recommendation is there but they're not affecting an average or anything like that you're just seeing things pop up because a lot of people you follow and trust are recommending it okay that's fair and speaking of uh photos and political viewpoints how how far down the road of of things that people could potentially recommend are you thinking you're going to go like restaurants and movies and tv shows and books all make fairly logical sense but i can imagine like a, a much broader sort of shopping sensibility or i don't know news stories or god only knows what else like how, what kinds of things do you think make sense in likewise we started with kind of media and entertainment and things you want to do so it's kind of watch listen um do an experience so you know notice we started with things that are generally very positive i mean people like to share recommendations on auto repair shops as well but we wanted to start with things that were positive experience based um items and really start with that positive environment over time, we'll see. I mean, it, it would not be very hard to go into products and people love to share recommendations on different products and a laptop they love or, or whatever. Um, it's not certainly not hard to extend there and even services, home services and and other things. Uh, events comes up as a request from users a lot, videos and articles. So you can see it extend to just about anything. Right now, our focus is nailing these core areas and then expanding as as it makes sense yeah i mean it 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 does seem like some things that you just named there could be slippery where i'm, I'm thinking of that like one of the things i think is is broken about reviews and and recommendations a lot of places on the internet is the only incentives people ever have to leave some sort of comment are when it's either great or terrible and mostly <laughs> terrible so they're like this was pretty good I had a good experience at this, you know, mechanic is just not mm -hmm. a thing you see online very often. Right, right. Uh, so you, you just touched on my absolute favorite thing about Likewise, and it, and it comes down to a founding principle and not not a decision that was easily made. But if you notice when you go on to Likewise, there's a recommendation button. There is no thumbs down. <laughs> and and there was a lot of debate on that. Mm -hmm. and, and fairly, you know, it's fair, right? Because you want to you know, it's, it's a trust network. You want to be able to tell your friends, you know, I know you heard this restaurant is good and eh, I'm not so excited about it anymore. We chose not to enable that. You could post a comment, you can put in there and say, Hey, I tried this recently, but it, the, the system does not neither incense nor makes it super easy to do that. Okay. That makes sense. And then from the, from the recommendations standpoint, it, it seems like, I feel like part of what is going to be really interesting 
for you guys is to see how good you get at serving those recommendations back because I've used a lot of platforms that purport to tell you what restaurant to go to and none of them are any good at it. Um, What does it take to get really good at recommending movies that I should watch? I think, um, you know, it's, it's a great point and it is difficult to make personalized recommendations for people. I think the work we have ahead of ourselves is on a couple fronts. One is certainly building out our own machine learning and, and so on. As we get smarter and smarter, we'll get better and better at that. The second, of course, is very closely tied to that. It's all about getting lots of data points from lots of people. And then even beyond that, as people share with friends and so on, we can start to get really smart about the connections between people and seeing and, and seeing how that plays out. And an example you might think about is if you're planning a trip, right? And, you know, you're planning a trip to Stockholm and you've never been to Stockholm. And frankly, none of your friends have been to Stockholm. But we see the type of people you're following, your, your friends that you're following, the sources you follow, as well as the things you like and they like. And now we can be very smart about things you will likely like in Stockholm, even down to the point of like who's recommending them, what other travelers or people in Stockholm are making those recommendations, because not only are their picks match with the type of things you like in your home city or other cities, but they're the type of people that you follow. So then there is no connectivity there between the actual people. But over time, we want to get smarter and smarter about being able to make those recommendations to you. Of course, it's all contingent on you being you being willing to share information about yourself in the form of what you're passionate about and what you like. I've been using Likewise a bunch, and it's useful for a lot of things, actually, but especially I've found some really great book recommendations from Bill Gates and lots of other people. If you want to find out what some smart people are reading, that's a cool place to start. Anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks to Ian, Stu, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And as always, thank you for listening. We have new episodes every Friday, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.